Well, greetings, New Hope Church. It's so good to be with you on this uh, misty and cool fall day with pumpkins arriving outside. I mean, this, this, it doesn't get more quintessentially Minnesota fall than a day like we're experiencing here today. And I'm so grateful to be part of that with you. Welcome, welcome into this space. If you are joining us as part of our online community, we're so glad to be with you today. Welcome to New Hope Church right here in the Minneapolis area. And uh, listen, this uh, video we just saw highlighted the student retreat from last weekend. I just wanna give a shout out to all the men who gathered the past, uh, this past uh, weekend, this, just yesterday, the night before, uh, for the men's retreat up in Wisconsin. We had an absolute blast. Can we just thank the Lord for, for uh, what was a great time together? And uh, you guys that were there, man, it was, uh, it was an amazing experience just to fellowship with uh, one another, uh, to experience the beauty, albeit wet, of a great, uh, great and lovely uh, camp and to spend time exploring what it is to live, love, and lead like Jesus. And uh, I was so grateful just to be part of that with all of you uh, guys that were there. So uh, today we want to step in uh, to the second chapter of the book of James. We're going to do that in a moment. But before we do, I want to pause and just pray, uh, mindful, as I'm sure you are, of everything going on still in Israel. And uh, so we, we uh, can appreciate that within the next uh, day or so, the uh, effort that the Israelis are bringing against Hamas is going to go to another level. And there is a humanitarian crisis unfolding uh, on both sides of that line. And so I want to pray right now. Uh, and ask that you would pray with me uh, that God and his mercy would rain down that mercy upon that land. Okay, let's, let's pray together. And so, Lord, with that in mind, I'm going to read here from Psalm 122. And I ask God of heaven that you would hear the earnestness of our hearts as we cry out to you. Your word says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and sisters and companions' sake, I will say peace be within you. And God, that is our desire. And we take it straight from your scriptures that that land with all of its tumult would find that that tumult can be bested easily, powerfully, wonderfully by the peaceableness, by the power, by the shed blood, by the eternal vision for hope manifested in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is Lord and God of the nations. And Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that you would allow mercy to come upon this entire situation and that you would intervene supernaturally if need be as a witness to a watching world that the God of the universe who calls Jerusalem his home, that this God reigns supreme and is very good. Make it so, O oh God, we pray. Now, Father, as we spend time in your word here right now, we pray that you would instruct us and help us lean in 
And help us to believe, as I certainly do, that you have something to say to us here today. And so we receive this with joy and expectation. And so, Lord, let your spirit work now. And all of God's people said together, amen, amen. So a collection of songwriters put forward this prayer in song, very simple. It says, give us your heart, O God. Give us your heart and let the light of heaven shine as we step into the dark. I love that. That is beautiful. Give us your heart, O oh God. Give us your heart and let the light of heaven shine as we step into the dark. That is beautiful. It is a vision for how to be the best possible follower of our Savior who loves the nations as we just prayed a moment ago. I love it, but I have a problem with it. My problem is I don't know that I want to live that way. I'm not sure exactly how to live that way, at least not in my own flesh, through my own power. To live that way is going to take me out of my comfort zone. To have the mindset of, Lord, I want your light to shine through me into the darkness of this world, it might cost me something. Maybe it would make me uncomfortable. Maybe somebody might not like me. Maybe I will have to deal with people that I would rather avoid. And see, I have this internal dialogue and it's a dialogue that restrains me and tells me all the reasons why I should not reach for being a vessel through which the light of heaven would shine. Oh, Matthew, it'll cost you. Oh, Matthew, it'll be uncomfortable. Oh, Matthew, don't do it. So what do I do with this? And how many of you might feel some of that same tension at times? Well, to be a light, that's beautiful. But maybe somebody else can do it. Because I don't have the time. And honestly, I don't have the energy. And I don't even know that I want to. Well, listen to me, friends. God's word helps us here. God's word gives us wisdom for how to process this, how to take hold of his best purposes. God's word helps us. My attention is drawn to James chapter two. I asked you a moment ago to turn there. We are right now exploring this New Testament book called James. It's an incredible book. We're gonna spend, Lord willing, several more weeks in it together here when we gather. I've said this before, I'll say it again. James is fiercely practical, direct, 
and accessible. It is gritty. It gets under our skin. It pokes into places that we don't want to have messed with. And one of them today in chapter 2 is how willing are we really to be vessels of light in a dark world? How willing are we really to get over our own selfishnesses and just give love to the world around us. Now I want you to sit in that tension right there. And I guarantee you I'm sitting there with you. We're together in this, okay? All right? We're together in this. And what I want to do is is lean into this second chapter. And when we do so, we discover there are 13 references to the word faith in this one chapter. 13 times in chapter 2 does the word faith appear. Uh, the, the chapter is saturated with that word. And uh, that stands out dramatically relative to the rest of the book of James. Uh, you, you can barely get it on one hand the other times it appears in the book of James. But 13 times just in these verses here in chapter 2. And by faith, what James is uh, referencing is this, this um, conviction about things that are true. When, when James is talking about, and really when the New Testament is talking about faith, it is a conviction about things that are true, particularly relating to the Lord God of heaven and earth. And what James does here is not only does he highlight faith uh, multiple times, but as he is doing so, he is communicating that the faith of which he speaks is a faith that is active and works itself out for the benefit of others. Did you hear that, church? It's a faith that is active and works itself out for the benefit of others. And that's a very important detail for you and me. Here's why. I want my faith, I, well, let me rephrase this. I, I too easily want my faith to just be mine. It's just God and me, and we hole up, and he and I do our thing together, and I talk to him, and I read his word, and I, I pray and ask for things, and I, I deal before him with my sin and my shame and my fears, and, but, but it's a very personal, very, this is God and me kind of thing. I want my faith to be that. James says, uh-uh. I mean, that's fine, perhaps, but your faith needs to work itself out so that it blesses whoever is around you. Oh, wow. You mean I have to be a, a channel of light from heaven to a dark place? Yes, you do. So what I want to do is I look at chapter 2, and I think about this, I realize, broadly speaking, there are two sections in chapter 2. And one is the principle of faith that works, and the other is the practice of faith that works. In a moment, we will look at the principle of faith that works, and then following that, the practice of faith that works. But first, I have to say something about attention here. And you may say, you mean there's another tension other than the one you've already mentioned that, 
that, uh, about, about trying to be so utterly selfless and other-centered that we're supposed to be lights in a dark world. When we don't want to do that, when we're not naturally inclined to do that, yeah, there is another tension as well. And that other tension is this. Throughout time, because James talks about the practicality of a faith that works and blesses others, he has been accused of saying that salvation is based on your works. That salvation comes through what you do. That you have to earn it by being good, doing good works. And I want you to hear loudly and clearly from me because there is genuine confusion about this. That is a lie from the pit of hell and smells like smoke. It's a lie. It's a falsity. The Apostle Paul gives clarity on this. And let me share with you, uh, just in, a, in one sentence here, a simple uh, reality. Scripture interprets Scripture. And the Apostle Paul, he tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, and you'll see it on, on your screens here, he tells you these words. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith being the conviction about what is true, particularly about God. This is not your own doing, he says. It is the gift of God. It's a gift from God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So Paul is clear. Our salvation isn't based on what you earn and how good you are and the kind of good works you do and whether or not your list of, of uh, good works outweighs your list of bad works and all of that. He, he makes it really clear. He says, no, your salvation is a gift from God that is accessed by faith, by this conviction uh, in what is true, the truth being that Jesus is the Savior of sinners. And let us never forget it, friends. This Jesus, he lived a sinless life. And then he was betrayed by a friend. And then he was arrested by the authorities and tried in an unjust religious court. And then he was tortured and crucified, killed on a wooden Roman cross. And three days later, what did he do? He rose from the dead. That's exactly right. Praise God. And then he ascended into the heavenly places and he sits now in session at the right hand of his Father where he is interceding for the saints, pleading with them, or rather pleading for them before God that God would be merciful to those who have been washed in the blood of Jesus. And one day he's going to return in triumphant glory and that's going to be incredible, amen? Praise the Lord for that. But because of this, reality of Jesus' sin and death and the devil no longer have the final word. So how dare we say we have to then earn such a salvation that is wrought through Calvary's tree when Jesus laid down his life for our salvation? Was that not good enough? We have to come along and earn it? No, absolutely not. The invitation is repent and believe. And by the way, by the way, if you have yet to do so, listening to me right now, 
If you're out and about somewhere across the world watching, and I know a number of you are, I hear from you almost weekly, or maybe you're right here in this very room, if you have not admitted that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and believed that Jesus is God's provision for your salvation and called on him to be your Savior and friend and Lord, right now is the time to do so. Right now. In fact, I just pray with me this very moment. Oh, Lord God, I am that sinful person, broken, that Pastor Matthew speaks of here. And I know I need salvation, but I can't bring it about myself because I'm a broken sinner. But I hear that you have provided for such through Jesus and his death on a cross to pay for my sins and his resurrection from the dead so I can have new life. And so I call on you in faith right now and ask you to be my Savior and Lord to forgive me and to call me yours forevermore. Oh, all God's people agree with that, right? Amen for that. So our salvation is wrought through the work of Jesus and the invitation is for us to trust him. And here's a theological term that comes about then. It's called justification. That means we are then declared righteous in the eyes of God because of the work of Jesus and the application of our faith or receptivity to that work. Now, that's what Paul is talking about when he uses the term faith. But when James uses the term faith, uh, he's thinking of a different theological construct He's thinking about those who are already justified, those who are already declared righteous in the eyes of God. What he's imagining is sanctification. That's the, the fancy theological term. And it means to grow in holiness, maturity. It means to become more Christ-like, to walk more closely with the Holy Spirit, the assumption here is you have already been declared righteous in the eyes of God. You are now a disciple. That is to say, you are now a Christian. And now you go on a journey of growth, spiritual growth. And this is what faith is for James in James chapter 2. He's not talking about the justification faith. He's talking about the sanctification faith. He's not talking about a faith that we uh, uh, project toward Jesus that we might enter in fully to salvation. He's talking about those who have already projected such faith toward Jesus and now they need to grow up in their faith as Christians who look like Jesus. And this is very important for us here to recognize well, having said that, let's get to the two broad things there in James 2. And so we have the, the principle of faith that works and the practice of faith that works. Let's look first at the principle of faith. And I want you to read what I've got here. The principle of faith that works. Our lives must be marked by the all-prevailing law of love. Now, I want you to just pause there for a moment. Leave that up there for just a second. I want you to pause there. And look at that and soak that in. Your life, my life, needs to be marked, defined, characterized by the all-prevailing law of love. And you may say, well, pastor, that sounds great. 
what is the all-prevailing law of love? Well, let's look here. James chapter 2, verse 8. All right, now I think this is the centerpiece of James chapter 2. And in fact, one argues that it might be the centerpiece of the entire book of James there in the New Testament, this verse. James chapter 2, verse 8, here's what it says. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If you really fulfill the royal law of all the scripture, love your neighbor as you love yourself, you are doing well. Now, for those of us who have some experience with the Bible and the stories of Jesus, our minds might readily go to a certain moment in Jesus' life and ministry uh, when he talks about this. In fact, he, he gives what is traditionally known as the great commandment. And it is uh, Matthew chapter 22. And in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is in a conversation and he's asked, what are the greatest commandments? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And then he says, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. You guys remember that? A number of us remember that, right? Love the Lord your God with all your Heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's beautiful, powerful. And it takes all of the uh, law of God. It takes the entire Bible, everything that has preceded that and follows, and it presses it all together into a nice, neat, potent, pithy statement of vision for our lives. Love God, love our neighbor. Naturally, we might go, well, why does James call loving the neighbor the royal command? Or think of it as the chief command. If the first thing Jesus says is to love God. Oh, love God. If somebody, if somebody were to say to you or to me, what is the royal command of the scripture? What is the chief of all the commands? If you could boil it all down to one, my inclination would be to say, well, love God. James says, no, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. The royal command, the chief command of all the Bible is love your neighbor. What about God? And listen to me, friends. Loving your neighbor, now what I'm about to say is so vital. Loving your neighbor is the proof that you are loving God supremely. Did you hear that? If you love God supremely, the witness to that is that you are loving your neighbor. You understand this, right? See, a lot of us get this backwards, and we spend so much of our energy on the relationship with God, and of course that makes sense on one level. And sometimes I wonder, certainly as God looks at me, if he might have his arms crossed and he's just being very patient and he's just like wanting to say something to the effect of, Matthew, I appreciate it, but have you seen your neighbor? Because if you want to love me, then you need to love her. And and by the way, the scriptures, uh, remember, scripture interprets scripture. uh, First first John chapter four, uh, which is one of the quintessential uh, 
expositions on the power of love. 1 John uh, chapter 4, uh, we read these words in verse 20. This is sobering. It says here, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Notice the language is absolute, cannot. It doesn't say, well, yeah, yeah, okay, fine. He loves God, all right, even though he doesn't like his neighbor. No, it's, it's pretty black and white. If you hate your neighbor, you don't love God even if you say you love God. And, and, and this is the principle here of a faith that works, there's an expectation. Our faith has to work itself outward toward the neighbor. And by the way, in James chapter two and verse 13, uh, we see a very simple, very mild reference to, to this reality of mercy. Uh, it says, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's not gloss over that because, remember, I said this last weekend, James is writing Jewish Christians that are scattered around the Roman Empire. And so these Jewish Christians will be really sensitive to the issue of mercy because it reflects one of the primary themes of the entire Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. It's the Hebrew word chesed, often spelled in English H-E-S-E-D, for those of you writing that down. And it literally means a love that is merciful, a steadfast, loyal love that is merciful. And we see God speak to his people of his hesed love. And so in Lamentations chapter 3, we hear the steadfast love of the Lord is new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And that is God's steadfast love toward his covenant people, toward, toward the people of God. But then we realize that it's not enough for us, hear me now church, it's not enough for us to just receive that hesed love from God, that merciful, loyal love. We have to give it away because then you have passages like Micah chapter six, verse eight, where we read, and what does the Lord require? But to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And the centerpiece of that declaration is love mercy. It literally is hesed, hesed, mercy, mercy, love, love. It's repeated for emphasis. And the idea there is that our love has to be something we receive, but something we give away. It is a love that is infused with loyalty and mercy and goodness. Pastor, Pastor Barry Cooper puts it this way. You'll see it here. In human relationships, hesed implies loving our neighbor. Not merely in terms of warm emotional feelings, but acts of love and service that we owe to the other person. A faith that works. All right, so that's a principle of a faith that works. Uh, it is that we must live into the all-prevailing law of love. All right, so let's talk about the practice of faith that works. The practice of faith that works. And look here what I've penned. All right, so genuine love actively transforms 
loves recipient and loves giver. Now, this is an experience that we will have. When we love like Christ, it blesses the world around us. When we allow our faith to work itself out actively, it blesses the world around us and it blesses us. So both the recipient and the giver benefit. And then what James does is he gives us some really practical, I mean very earthy illustrations of such things. Well, let's look first at these illustrations about uh, the giver, or I'm sorry, the recipients of love. And, and uh, so in James, in, in James chapter 2, I want you to notice here, it's very famous, verses 2 and following. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil intents, evil thoughts? Now by assembly, he's talking about the church, the community of the redeemed. And, and James is saying, look, do you treat with partiality or prejudice the people that walk into your community? And I want you to note, this is a negative illustration. It's as if James is saying, here's what you don't do. You don't do this. You don't differentiate like this. You don't make these distinctions. You don't show partiality. You're not prejudiced in how you treat people of different categories and classes. Sure, there is the reality of rich and poor. Sure, there are cultural and ethnic differences. Absolutely. But you don't treat people with partiality and prejudice and distinction. Because under the banner of Jesus, we are all one and the same. Sinners in desperate need to be washed and made clean by the blood of the Lamb. And so there's no room for distinctions like this within the church. And to do so is most unloving. But to, to, to welcome all with mercy is one way that our love is made manifest and our faith is exhibited. Then, though, James goes further and he, he gives yet another illustration. And I want you to see this one uh, as well. And it's also, it, it also has a negative tone to it. And so uh, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, that is to say, faith that works itself out so as to bless others? Can that kind of faith save him? And we're not talking salvation faith here. We're talking about this, this uh, uh, human flourishing, this sense of, of being satisfied and, and at peace with God. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. How many of us hear this mantra constantly in the news? Thoughts and prayers. And we stop there. 
What might it look like if the Christian community across the United States moved past thoughts and prayers and went into tangible action? Whether it is uh, in, in, in coming alongside those who are downtrodden and broken, whether it is legislative, whether it is, is um, in terms of our money or time, thoughts and prayers, well wishes, sentimental well wishes, okay, fine, move past that toward tangible supply. And let's then see what kind of difference that makes in the world around us. And James is like, if you really want to grow in your faith, you want a faith that works, move past sentimentality and well wishes and reach for tangible supply for your neighbor. Then, then we can talk about how well you are, how much uh, maturity you got, and how, how, uh, how you are growing as somebody who has called on Christ. Guys, this is big stuff. Well, that's relating to the recipient, but there's also a blessing for the giver. I'll mention this briefly. We won't belabor it too much here, but I want you to note with me here, uh, look with me in verse 21 of James 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works. The faith was completed by his works. And the scriptures were fulfilled, which had said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Notice it is belief in God that counts him as righteous or declares him as righteous. He was called a friend of God. Now, this is a story going back to the early parts of the book of Genesis where Abraham is called upon to sacrifice his own son. And this was a tension for Abraham because God had said, I'm going to give you a son, and now God seems to be saying, and I want you to sacrifice him. Abraham was living in this awful conundrum. God, you've given me a boy, and now you want me to sacrifice him. How is this going to be resolved? But Abraham believed at the end of the day, I will be obedient, but I'm going to believe God's going to provide a different way for salvation to come about for my boy. And it becomes this incredibly intense and powerful foreshadowing of the work of Christ where God gave up his own son to redeem the world. But at the end, of course, no, he didn't have to slay his son. God did provide a lamb in the thicket next. And God said, I see that you trust me. Now I want you to take that lamb and the lamb will be the one that dies to spare the boy. Powerful word picture of our salvation. But I want you to know then, Abraham is called a friend of God because his faith, which had been so work, uh, so actively at play here, merited such a sweet affirmation. Hey, you're my friend. And then we see with Rahab, verse 25, in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? That's a story from uh, the book of Joshua. And the people of God running around Jericho's walls day after day, and then Jericho's walls fall. But there had been a prostitute named Rahab who had taken some Israeli or Israelite spies, kept them safe. She knew somehow God was on the move, and she wanted to be a part of that. And by keeping them safe, her story is told millennia later. And God blessed her and took care of her family. 
She had a faith that worked actively. She knew God was real. And then she wanted to apply that in her life. And God blessed her. And so we see, friends, that when we allow our faith to work itself actively, it blesses those around us, but it also comes back to us and blesses us. So we're a friend of God, and our story could be told for all of time. Well, let me, let me wrap up with, with uh, actually a, a very pointed piece of direction for you. And I, I want you to listen here, please. I want you to change your internal dialogue. Now, you may, you may wonder what that means. We'll see it right here. Change your internal dialogue so your actions, shaped by humble faith in Jesus, the Lord of glory, will honor him, others, and yourself. You may say, but pastor, what's the internal dialogue? James chapter two, verse four, it ends with, if you show distinctions and prejudices and partialities, that comes from evil thoughts. And that word for thoughts in the Greek language is the word dialogamos, from which we get the English word dialogue. We have these thoughts within us, this internal dialogue that is bent toward evil, bent toward prejudice, bent toward partiality, bent toward comfort, bent toward selfishness. Even as Christians, it's part of the flesh, it's part of the fight. And I'm asking you, and I'm asking myself, change the internal dialogue. Change it. And you may wonder, how? Oh, friends, so beautifully. Colossians chapter 3 puts it this way. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, we read these amazing words from the Apostle Paul. He says this, think about things above, not on earthly things, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, put those on, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Change the internal dialogue so that instead of constantly musing over all the ways you don't want to be a light or can't be a light or it's uncomfortable to be a light in a dark world, because we think about things above and that becomes our internal dialogue, his compassion, his forgiveness, his power, his love, his mercy, and that flows through us. And the light of heaven shines brightly in otherwise dark places. And that is our faith on full display.